وَإِن تَتَوَلَّوْا كَمَا تَوَلَّيْتُمْ مِنْ قَبْلُ يُعَذِّبُكُمْ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا لَيْسَ عَلَى الْعَامَى حَرَجٌ وَلَا عَلَى الْعَارَجِ حَرَجٌ وَلَا عَلَى الْمَرِيضِ حَرَجٌ وَمَنْ يُتْعِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ يُدْخِلْهُ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ وَمَنْ يَتْوَلَّا يُعَذِّبُهُ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا Say to those who remain behind of the Arabs, You will be called to face a people of great military might. You may fight them, or they will submit. So if you obey, Allah will give you a good reward. But if you turn away as you turned away before, he will punish you with a painful punishment. There is not upon the blind any guilt, or upon the lame any guilt, or upon the ill any guilt. And whoever obeys Allah and his messenger, he will admit him to gardens beneath which rivers flow. But whoever turns away, he will punish him with a painful punishment. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 6-7, World War II and Palestine. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Zionist movement begins in the late 19th century to create an international home for Jews. Since then, there are sporadic waves of Jewish immigration, called Aliyah, from Europe to Palestine. During World War I, the United Kingdom takes up the cause of Zionism leading to the Balfour Declaration. When the British capture Jerusalem from the Ottomans, they begin the process of turning Palestine into a Jewish state. And with that, let's take a look at politics in Palestine. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com.
Politics in Palestine The British conducted a census in Jerusalem just a little after capturing it from the Ottomans in 1917. At the time, there were 512,000 Muslims in Palestine, 66,000 Christians, and 61,000 Jews. Of those 61,000 Jews, 50,000 were indigenous old Jews who were from the Middle East. The remainder were new Jews from Europe, called Yeshuv. Political activism grew in Palestine throughout the 1920s and 1930s. Affluent Arab families sent their children to study abroad in places like Cairo, Beirut, and Europe. Many of these young, educated Arabs returned to Palestine and became political activists. In 1925, Arab Palestinians formed the Palestinian Worker Society. The PWS advocated for better working conditions, higher wages, and demanded an end to Zionist migration and colonization. Istiklal was the first modern Palestinian political party. Formed in 1932, Istiklal's platform was based on a pan-Islamic philosophy. Other parties after Istiklal included the Palestine Arab Party, the National Defense Party, and the Reform Party. In 1936, Amin al-Husseini brought these different Palestinian political organizations under one group called the Arab Higher Committee. This allowed the Palestinians to speak with a unified voice during any labor negotiations or strikes. The Jews of Palestine were also getting political and at a much faster rate than the Arabs. In fact, Jewish political organizations had existed in Palestine long before the British mandate. The Poel Zion Party was originally established in Syria in 1906, followed by the Jewish Agency in 1908. The Jewish Agency was the Ottoman branch of the Zionist movement representing Zionist causes before the Sultan. The Jewish Agency grew more influential after the British captured Palestine. By the time the mandate began, the Jewish Agency was the most influential Zionist organization in Palestine. There were also organizations for new Jewish settlers such as Ahdud HaAvoda, led by future Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, and Hapuel Hatzair. The third Aliyah, or Jewish immigration wave to Palestine, took place from 1919 to 1923. This brought nearly 40,000 European Jews to Palestine. In 1920, a group of these new Jewish immigrants formed Gudud HaAvoda, a political organization intended to unite Jewish workers in Palestine. From Gudud HaAvoda came Histadrut, a Jewish labor union. David Ben-Gurion was elected secretary of Histadrut in 1921. From that point forward, Histadrut's membership grew rapidly. In 1920, Histadrut only had 4,400 members. Seven years later, it had quintupled to nearly 25,000 members. 75% of all Jewish workers in mandatory Palestine belonged to Histadrut. Haganah, formed in 1920, was the military wing of Histadrut. Haganah would play a critical role in the coming years. 
As Palestinian Arabs and Jews grew more organized, clashes between them grew more frequent. There were sporadic riots and clashes throughout much of the 1920s, but things took a turn for the worse in 1929. Arab demonstrators allegedly attacked Jewish worshippers at the Wailing Wall, leading to a violent riot. The British military was called in to quell the violence, and the violence they inflicted led to 250 deaths, most of whom were Arab. This turned many Arabs against the British and any pro-British Arab politicians. Palestine in the 1930s The Shaw Commission formed the following March to investigate the causes of the riots in Jerusalem. Not surprisingly, they determined the root cause to be Arab concerns over losing their country to Jewish immigrants. This led to the Passfield White Paper, issued that fall, advising the British government to limit Jewish migration to Palestine and the sale of Palestinian lands to Jews. The Zionists immediately denounced the Passfield White Paper, saying it violated the terms of the Balfour Declaration and the British Mandate. Hoping to allay Zionist concerns, Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald wrote to Chaim Weizmann, leader of the Zionist movement, assuring him that Britain's position was to adhere to the terms of the mandate. When news of this letter got out, it was denounced by the Arabs. Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933 and soon began passing laws restricting Jewish civil liberties. Not long after that, Germany opened its first concentration camps. Meanwhile in Palestine, Jewish settlers were protesting against migration restrictions. Arab and Jewish leaders in Palestine met to try to deal with the unrest. David Ben-Gurion, leader of the Jewish agency, represented the Jewish side. Musa Alami and Auli Abdul Hadi both Palestinian politicians, along with George Antonius, a Lebanese diplomat, represented the Arab side. Nothing came from these discussions, leading the Arab Higher Committee to call for a general strike. Frustrated with harsh British rule and impotent Arab politicians, the demonstrators called for independence and an end to Jewish immigration. British police and military brutally snuffed out the protests, resulting in the deaths of 12 Arabs. The following year, in 1934, Adolf Hitler was voted Führer of Germany, giving him near-dictatorial powers. He began ramping up the persecution of Jews, forcing thousands to flee the country. Over the next two years, over 150,000 Jewish refugees from Germany migrated to Palestine. This drastic influx increased tensions even further. Sheikh Izzuddin al-Qasim, a graduate of Al-Azhar University, led a peasant uprising near Jenin in 1935. Al-Qasim became known for delivering fiery speeches against British occupation while holding a sword. He also created a secret organization called the Black Hand, which attacked British infrastructure and Jewish settlers. Al-Qassam was eventually killed in a firefight with British police. This turned him into a hero and intensified Palestinian anger towards the British. That September, Germany passed the Nuremberg Laws, a set of discriminatory statutes targeting Jews. The following year, 
Palestinian Arabs launched another general strike against British occupation. It lasted for 175 days before neighboring Arab states pressured the Palestinians to call it off. But the anger was still there. The protesters from the general strike escalated their activities leading to an armed revolt against the British. The uprising was led by Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Palestine. The Palestinians were now fighting against two enemies, the British government and the Zionist immigrants. When the British regained control of the cities, the Palestinians took the fight to the countryside. They were joined by Fauzi al-Kawukji, a Syrian military officer who led a band of Arab militants into Palestine. In July 1937, the British formed yet another committee to investigate the cause of Arab unrest in Palestine. The Peel Commission published a report stating the Arabs were upset because they wanted independence and did not want their country to be turned into a Jewish state. The Peel Commission offered several recommendations. It suggested dividing Palestine into two different states, one for Jews and one for Arabs. The Jewish state, which would be about 20% of Palestine, would include Galilee, the Jezreel Valley, and the coastal plain between Jaffa and Gaza. The Peel Commission also advised Great Britain establish a permanent mandate over Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth while maintaining a corridor to the sea. The rest of Palestine would go to the Arabs and be joined with Transjordan. This included the Negev Desert in the south, as well as Samaria and Judea in the east. The Zionists accepted this plan, though with some conditions. The Arabs flat-out rejected it. A few weeks later, Yeland Andrews, the British High Commissioner for Galilee, was killed by a group of Arab militants. This ruined whatever sympathy the Peel Commission had generated for the Palestinian Arabs. The British adopted even harsher measures against the Arabs and became even more brutal in stomping out the rebellion. They outlawed the Arab Higher Commission and arrested most of its members. Some, like Amin al-Husseini, fled to Syria. Al-Husseini would eventually make his way to Germany, where he would petition the Nazis to support the Arab cause. With the Palestinian political and civil leadership decimated by arrests and exiles, the revolt began to sputter. The British, working with both Zionist militants and Palestinian police, slowly squeezed the life out of the rebellion. One of those Zionist militias was Irgun, a paramilitary offshoot of Haganah. Menachem Begin, future prime minister of Israel, was one of its leaders. The Arab uprising did experience some success. They captured and held Jaffa for several months in 1938 and held parts of Jerusalem for nearly a week. They also briefly held other cities such as Nablus, Bethlehem, Hebron, Ramallah, and Beersheba. As the uprising sputtered out, the British attitude kept shifting. In November, they changed position and ruled out partitioning Palestine. But the following spring, they shifted yet again and leaned more in favor towards the Arabs. Yet another white paper was published in May 1939 recommending restricting Jewish migration for five years before ending it altogether. 
They also recommended selling some lands in Palestine to Jewish settlers who were already there. Arabs and Jews both rejected this idea. The Arab leadership took a hard stance. They insisted the only acceptable solution was immediate independence and immediate ban on all Jewish migration, followed by a review of all Jewish immigrants since 1918. World War II Germany invaded Poland in 1939 and everyone forgot about Palestine. Great Britain declared war on Germany, followed by Australia, New Zealand, France, South Africa, and Canada. But Germany was unstoppable. Throughout 1940, the German military stormed across Europe, conquering everything in its path. In April 1940, Germany invaded and occupied Denmark and Norway. In May 1940, Germany took Holland and Belgium. In June 1940, Germany took France. In July 1940, Germany began a massive bombing campaign against the British. Germany installed a puppet government in France called Vichy France. The Vichy government sent troops and officers to the Middle East to take over France's possessions there as well. By the end of 1940, both Syria and Lebanon were under Vichy authority. Germany also had its allies. In September 1940, they signed a mutual alliance pact with Italy and Japan. Together, they were known as the Axis powers. While the world was focused on events in Europe, Palestine was in turmoil. A new Zionist militia called Lehi had formed in Palestine. Lehi, also known as the Stern Gang, was a breakaway faction of Irgun and very anti-British. Lehi used terrorism and allied with Arabs and even Nazis in its war against the British. Haganah was also resorting to extremism. In November 1940, a steamship called Patria exploded and sunk off the coast of Haifa in Palestine, killing nearly 260 Jewish refugees. These refugees had arrived illegally to Palestine and the British were preparing to deport them to Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. Haganah planted the bomb that sunk Patria. Some say they did this to disable the ship and prevent it from leaving. Others say they wanted to draw attention to the plight of Jews. A few months later, another Zionist militia branched off from Haganah. This one, called Palmach, was an elite force dedicated to protecting Jews living in Palestine if the Germans or Italians invaded. But Palmach also worked with the British military, helping to secure the oil pipeline between Haifa and Iraq. In December 1940, the Axis powers began to show their first signs of stress when Great Britain defeated Italian forces in North Africa. This forced Hitler to divert already overextended German resources and troops away from Europe. The following year, in 1941, the Nazis began sending Jews to concentration camps as a form of forced labor. These concentration camps were scattered throughout Germany and all the lands it currently occupied, particularly Poland. In the spring of 1941, Germany made the mistake that would cost it the war. By this time, 
Germany controlled most of Western Europe. Italy was an ally while Spain was recovering from a civil war. Spain was also ruled by a fascist dictator whom Hitler admired. Great Britain was still defiant. The Nazi bombing campaign of Britain was devastating, but Hitler was reluctant to invade for several reasons. For one, he admired British imperialism and was hoping they'd eventually negotiate. But Winston Churchill was Britain's new prime minister and he refused to budge. Secondly, an amphibious invasion of the British Isles was suicide. Great Britain still commanded the greatest navy in the world and would bleed Germany dry if it tried to cross the English Channel. With no place left to conquer in the West, Hitler turned east. Back in 1939, he had signed a non-aggression treaty with Joseph Stalin. But the Soviets were in disarray from one of Stalin's bloody purges. Hitler also believed Russians were genetically inferior to Germans. Germany had whipped Russia during the First World War, and Hitler was confident they could do it again. In June 1941, Adolf Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, a surprise attack on the Soviet Union. He expected to conquer Moscow by winter before turning his attention back to the British. Things did not go according to plan. The initial attack caught the Soviets by surprise, allowing the Nazis to make substantial progress. But then winter came and the Germans got bogged down at the Battle of Moscow. This gave the Soviets time to mobilize, ramping up their tank production and bringing millions of troops to the front. That December, things got even more complicated for the Axis powers. Japan attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii as well as British territories in Asia. The United States and the United Kingdom both declared war on Japan. Germany, in turn, declared war on the United States. In 1942, with the threat of an American invasion looming, the Nazis began killing millions of prisoners in their concentration camps. Most of these prisoners were Jews. Throughout German-controlled Europe, Jews were herded into tightly packed rooms and gassed to death. Others were mowed down by machine gun fire, and still others died slowly from starvation, sickness, and torture. All told, nearly 6 million Jews and 1 million Roma were killed by the Nazis. While this was going on, a small group of Zionist leaders met at the Biltmore Hotel in New York City and came to a critical decision. It was time to take a more aggressive stance in the Middle East. They were going to take Palestine and make it theirs. As for the Palestinian Arabs, the past 20 years had proven that conflict was inevitable and inescapable. The Zionist leaders accepted the fact they would have to fight the Arabs for Palestine. The prediction from the King Crane Commission was correct. The only way the Zionists could settle Palestine was by force. The End of the Second World War by the spring of 1943, momentum was decidedly in the Allies' favor. American and British troops had successfully defeated the Axis powers in North Africa and were now moving towards Europe.
That August, they captured Sicily. The next month, Italy surrendered. In the Pacific, the United States had started slow and struggled against the already fully mobilized Japanese Navy. But throughout 1942, the Americans had ramped up their military production and the tide was changing. The United States won the Battle of Midway in 1942 and began island hopping, a process of steadily pushing Japanese forces out of the Pacific. In June of 1944, Allied troops began landing on the beaches of Normandy in France. By August 1944, Paris was liberated and Nazi defeat was inevitable. Meanwhile, another sort of war was taking place in Palestine. Minikin Begin and the Lehigh Militant Group declared war on Great Britain. But the war in Europe consumed British attention and resources, allowing Lehigh to run free in Palestine. That November, they assassinated Lord Moyne, the British Minister of State in Cairo. The official Zionist military organizations, Haganah and Palmach, denounced Lehigh's activities. But the fact is that several members of the legitimate militant groups were also members of the illegitimate militant groups. None of that mattered at the moment because the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium was more important. This was Germany's last-ditch offensive effort to halt the Allied advance. But it did not work. The Allies won the Battle of the Bulge in January 1945 and never looked back. From that point forward, the Germans were fighting a defensive war and in constant retreat. The Allies closed in on Berlin with the Soviets approaching from the east while the Americans came from the west. Hitler, seeing the end was near, took the easy way out and committed suicide. As Allied forces swept through German territory, they came across the various Nazi concentration camps. As they liberated the camps, they uncovered mass graves, starving prisoners, and evidence of horrific torture. These gruesome images were broadcast across the globe, increasing international sympathy for the Jewish people. By the time Germany surrendered and the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, the entire Western world wanted to help the Jewish people. Now more than ever, the necessity of a Jewish homeland was abundantly clear. The victorious allies took the remnants of the failed League of Nations and created a new global organization called the United Nations. The United Nations, based in New York City, would hopefully do a better job at preventing another world war and promoting global peace. After the War The Zionists in Palestine were not talking about peace. In October 1945, the same month the United Nations was formed, the Irgun, Lehi, and Haganah militant groups came together to form the United Resistance Movement. Over the next several months, these Zionist militants conducted various terrorist acts throughout Palestine, including bombing trains, British police stations, bridges, and hotels. For their part, the British had had enough and were ready to get out of Palestine. Two devastating and brutal global wars in 20 years had brought the British Empire to its knees. It was a new world order and time for Great Britain to take a back seat to the new American juggernaut. So the British did what they did best. 
they formed another committee. The Anglo-American Committee was made up of British and American diplomats. Its function was to figure out what to do with Palestine. They also had to figure out the current condition of Jews in Europe, how best to relocate Jewish refugees to Palestine, and what to do with the mandate. In January 1946, the Anglo-American Committee submitted its report and recommendations. The committee advised resettling 100,000 Jews in Palestine. The committee also recommended the Arab-Jewish conflict be brought before the United Nations and that all parties should agree to its decision. Meanwhile, Lehi killed seven British soldiers in Tel Aviv. Kaim Weitzman, leader of the Zionist movement, responded by asking the United Resistance Movement to stop its violent activities until the Jewish Agency and the United Nations had made a decision. The British were determined to end the mandate. In February 1947, they announced they were referring the Palestine issue to the UN. The United Nations formed its own committee called the UN Special Committee on Palestine, or UNSCOP for short. When this committee finally released its report, it called for a two-state solution dividing Palestine between Jews and Arabs. The Jewish Agency accepted the UN's decision. The Arab Higher Commission and most Arab governments rejected it. Nonetheless, the United Nations and Great Britain went forward with this plan. The UN General Assembly endorsed UNSCOP's two-state solution. The following month, in December 1947, Britain announced its plan to withdraw from Palestine by May 15, 1948. With this announcement, Great Britain washed its hands of the situation. Meanwhile, Palestine descended into chaos. Arabs and Jews began attacking each other throughout Palestine. Most of these were disorganized, opportunistic attacks on civilians. An attack from one side triggered a response from the other, resulting in a never-ending cycle of violence. And in most cases, the British refused to intervene. The violence intensifies. As the months ticked by and the mandate drew to a close, the violence in Palestine grew sharper and more organized. Though attacks on civilians continued, Arab and Jewish militias now waged running gun battles in the streets. But the Zionist militias were steadily gaining the upper hand. Most of the Zionist fighters had the advantage of British training. On the other hand, the Arab militias fought each other as often as they fought the Zionists. The Arabs got a slight morale boost when the Syrian warrior Fauzi al-Kawukji returned and took over the Arab Liberation Army. But even he was no match for the Zionist forces. On April 9, 1948, Zionist militants from Ergun and Lehi attacked a Palestinian village called Diyar Yassin, just outside of Jerusalem. The Arab villagers put up a strong defense but were eventually overwhelmed by the Zionists. Nearly 200 villagers died defending their homes. Several more were killed by the Zionist militants even after they had surrendered. 
When the news got out, many Arab Palestinians, realizing there was no one to protect them, fled to Jordan and Syria. Four days later, the Arabs struck back. Arab militants ambushed a Hadassah medical convoy transporting Jewish medical personnel. The convoy was not defenseless as it was being escorted by Haganah militants. The attack took place at Mount Scopus in Jerusalem, resulting in the deaths of 78 Jews, many of them doctors and nurses. By May 14, 1948, the day before the end of the mandate, most British troops and civilian personnel had left Palestine. Standing before the Provisional State Council, the precursor to the Knesset, David Ben-Gurion announced the formation of the Independent State of Israel. Ben-Gurion was selected as Israel's first prime minister and Chaim Weizmann as its first president. The next day, the Arab League, a coalition including Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and the Palestinian militias, declared war on Israel. In the next episode, we will discuss the events of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Richard the Lionheart.
But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. The Crusader's siege of Acre continues through the winter of 1189 to the spring of 1190. Salahuddin's navy is defeated in battle, allowing the Crusaders to dominate the sea. King Guy leads the Crusaders in an attack on Salahuddin, but is repulsed. Salahuddin is forced to wait out another winter with the Crusader camp still intact. And now, the Muslim garrison of Acre is facing starvation. And with that, let's discuss King Richard I, Cor de Lyon. Richard the Lionheart Richard of Aquitaine was the second oldest living son of King Henry II of England and his wife, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. As the second son, Richard was not expected to become king. That honor went to his older brother, known as Henry the Younger. Richard became Duke of Aquitaine in 1172 at the age of 15. Aquitaine was in France and included the province of Poitou. Within Poitou was a small region called Lusignan, which is where King Guy's family originated. Hence, Guy of Lusignan was a vassal of Richard of Aquitaine. Richard Cordelion, or Richard the Lionheart as he'd come to be known, was part of the Angevin dynasty. King Henry II and the Angevin dynasty originated in Anjou, France. Though Richard was born in England, he grew up in France, and French was his first language. The Angevin were technically subordinate to the Capetian dynasty, led by King Louis VII of France. But the Angevin controlled more land and were more powerful than the Capetians. The Angevin dynasty was the very definition of a dysfunctional family. Richard often fought against his older brother, Henry the Younger. 